Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Michael Suarez, and I'm the director of Rare Book School, and it's my great honor to welcome you to this, not only the sixth of our summer lecture series here in our 35th anniversary year at Rare Book School, but also the biggest lecture of the year at Rare Book School, the Malkin Lecture. Saul and Mary Ann Malkin Lecture in Bibliography is named for the two founding editors of A.B. Bookman's Weekly, which from 1948 to 1999 was among the most important journals in the antiquarian bookselling world. Covering book collecting and research librarianship as, used, as well as used and rare bookselling, the journal was consistently full of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and to librarians. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of her husband, Saul Malkin. What a lovely gesture in recognition of his contributions to the antiquarian book trade and the world of books more generally. Michael Winship, the distinguished Rare Book School faculty member and professor at the University of Texas at Austin, gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography at Columbia University in December of 1985. After Saul Malkin died in 1986, Marianne herself continued to support Rare Book School both at Columbia and at the University of Virginia. In the late 1990s, she allowed RBS founding director Terry Bellinger to change the name of the lecture to the Saul M. and Marianne O'Brien Malkin Lecture in Bibliography. Until her death in 2005, she came down from New York City to attend the lecture, and she was a great friend of RBS, both in life and in death. Malkin lectures over the years have included such luminaries as Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, Bill Barlow, Bob Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucien Goldschmidt, Jim Green, Selby Kiefer, who I believe is among our number today, Catherine Kyles Lee, Paul Needham, Bill Reese of Late Happy Memory, alas, Barney Rosenthal, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. The list could go on much longer indeed. It is a distinguished group, and today's lecture is no exception. Dr. Kathleen Baker is a paper and book conservator with more than 45 years experience. She is the author of numerous articles and books, including By His Own Labor, the, the biography of Dard Hunter 200, and From the Hand to the Machine, 19th Century American Paper and Mediums, Technologies, Materials, and Conservation, 2010. Dr. Baker has an MA in Art History from Syracuse University and from the University of Alabama, an MFA in Book Arts, 
and a PhD in communication studies. She is also widely known throughout the book world as the proprietor of the award-winning Legacy Press, established in 1997, which specializes in publishing books about printing, paper, and bookbinding arts. It is my great pleasure to welcome Kathleen Baker among us this evening. Thank you, Michael. Can everyone hear me? Good. Um, good afternoon, and I want to uh, thank, want to extend my thanks to the Rare Book School for inviting me to speak, um, particularly at this named lecture, which I only found out about a couple of weeks ago. So it is, it is a real honor for me to among, be among all of the uh, incredible people that uh, and others that Michael uh, just enumerated for us. Um, I especially want to acknowledge uh, Jeremy Dibble for his assistance, and um, I, you know, it's my my uh, appreciation goes out to everyone at Rare Book School, all of the staff who put in so much work into making sure this thing takes over uh, as it should without uh, inhibiting anybody in any way. Earlier this year, I received the Catherine Panzer Senior Fellowship in Bibliography awarded by the Bibliographical Society of America, and I want to uh, here convey my deep appreciation to the BSA for this award. This talk centers on the inspired work of two men, John Baskerville and uh, James Watman Sr., who lived in England more than 250 years ago during the Age of Enlightenment, and it reveals how their innovative spirits helped create a unique book in the history of printing and papermaking. Before John Baskerville became an important figure in the history of publishing, typography, and printing, he owned a profitable business lacquering metal objets d'art in Birmingham. Exactly why he decided to enter the publishing business is not known, but it does tell us that he was an entrepreneur, not afraid to invest in a venture in which he had no experience and which required a lot of capital. Deciding in around 1750 that he wanted to publish the classics, Baskerville purchased printing equipment and he must have hired at least one punch cutter, a type founder, compositor, a corrector or a proofreader, and a pressman as well as uh, probably an apprentice or two. He also designed a typeface that he named after himself for the exclusive use of his press. Note that the typeface in these slides is actually Garamond, uh, uh, Adobe's Garamond Premier Pro. This note is set in digital Baskerville, which I don't particularly like, so I decided not to use it for this talk. <laughs> In 1757, Baskerville issued an extraordinary book, his very first book, The Collected Works of Virgil, the Roman poet who lived between 70 and 19 BCE. This is the first page of a prospectus that Baskerville issued a few years before the Virgil was published 
Its purpose was to attract at least 500 subscribers who promised to purchase the book, thus ensuring that the costs of publication were recouped. In it, Baskerville stated, the work will be printed in quarto on this writing royal paper. However, that writing royal paper, seen here on the left in transmitted light, and the two papers that Baskerville actually used are quite different. Most notably is the wove paper seen on the far right, and it has been assumed, and I think justifiably so, that this is the first time that wove paper was manufactured in the West. And I, if you don't look at this paper too carefully, you might think that these are actually both laid papers that you're looking at, and um, we'll find out why that's so in just a minute. So who made this paper? Our best guess is James uh, Watman, Sr. Watman, born in 1702, was a tanner like his father, but by 1740, he owned several paper mills in Maidstone in Kent, notably the famous Turkey Mill, which you see outlined here in black. By the early 1750s, Watman had gained a reputation as a manufacturer of quality papers, and it seemed safe to assume that he made what I call the Virgil Wove. Unfortunately, before he could perfect this new paper, Watman Sr. died in 1759, two years after the Virgil was published. But fortunately, James Watman Jr. continued his father's work to perfect wove paper, which unfortunately I don't have time to address here. Interestingly, only half of the Virgil was printed on wove paper. This is the distribution of wove and laid papers in the Virgil, and my suggested order of printing uh, appears in red, which again, I don't have time to talk about. I could talk about this forever, but anyway. Um, so gatherings C through double E are on wove paper. I believe that this part of the book was printed first. Uh, gatherings F through, uh, double F through triple H on laid paper. Then going back to gatherings A and B, again on laid paper. The canceled leaves or gatherings uh, printed fourth. The title page probably fitted, printed fifth. And then the list of subscribers also printed on laid paper um, was updated as subscribers were added. A conservative number of the sheets of paper of wove, uh, of wove paper made for the Virgil are um, the number of full sheets of wove paper per book is 26 sheets, uh, which means 26 gatherings. And the estimated number of, uh, maximum number of copies in this edition is um, a thousand. We really don't know how many copies were actually printed. Uh, in this first edition. If we take a thousand copies and multiply that times the number of sheets required, we get 26,000 sheets of paper. Now, 26,000 sheets of paper seems like a lot of paper, but Gaskell, in his new introduction to bibliography, estimated that about 2,400 sheets of paper a day were made at one vat in a high production mill, such as Turkey Mill. Thus, all of the Virgil Woe could have been made in less than three weeks. An important question comes to mind, why wasn't the entire book printed on wove paper? 
Unfortunately, the answer to that question will probably never be known. There is, however, another issue with regard to the wove paper section, which doesn't have anything to do with the kind of paper involved. There are many more composition errors in that half compared to the laid paper half. Here, the leaf on the left is the original printing on wove paper, and on the right, a canceled leaf, called uh, a canceled leaf, called a, a corrected leaf. Sorry, called a cancel, which was printed on laid paper and attached to the other leaf uh, using a stub, which is that sort of darker uh, line in the middle. To date. Uh, Oh, to date, the error or errors uh, corrected haven't been identified in this corrected uh, leaf, although it is possible that the quality of printing might not have been up to par. Nearly all of the cancels, leaves and gatherings, in the Virgil were printed on the same laid paper. By the way, kudos to those of you who notice that the verso pages are odd-numbered and the recto pages are even-numbered. That is because one-third of this book was incorrectly paginated, again, most of which is in the wove paper section. These errors are due to poor composition and proofreading done by people who were less than skillful, skillful or possibly more than drunk. And the presence of these errors and cancels leads, uh, I think, uh, lends further support to the idea that the wove paper section might have been printed first when everybody was sort of feeling their way around. This is a stub created when the incorrect leaf was torn from the gathering. The consistency of the torn stubs and the paste used to attach the cancels to them leads me to believe that most of the cancels were dealt with in Baskerville's print shop and only rarely in bind binderies. Before delving into my experiments to replicate the Virgil wove, I will review the differences between laid and wove paper. This can be a little complicated, so bear with me, please. The first laid molds for making paper were made from plant materials and used in China, Japan, and Korea. Over many centuries, paper making traveled west into India, the Islamic world, North Africa, and into Spain. By at least the 13th century, the European laid mold was no longer made with plant materials, but with metal wire. And for more than 500 years, until about 1755, when the wove, Virgil wove was probably made, the only kind of paper-making mold in use in the West was laid. To make laid covers on a mold, Horizontal laid lines are attached to one another with a pair of chain wires. And these, this line that the chain wires makes is often referred to as chain lines. And then this cover is sewn with wire stitches directly to the underlying wooden ribs of the mold frame. Because the laid cover touches the ribs, during sheet formation, the water in the pulp drains preferentially along the ribs and it is there that uh, denser accumulations of fiber create rib shadows seen in the paper. I hope you can see these are these darker lines. The white line going down the middle of those shadows is the chain line. 
Malts and papers of this type are called single-faced or antique-laid. Early single-faced wove wire molds are similar to single-faced laid molds in that the, wire, uh, the wove cover was also sewn directly to the ribs, but there are no chain wires, so therefore no chain lines. In this single-faced mold, the wire screen is sewn directly to the ribs. I hope you can see these little stitches, um, and those would attach this cover to the ribs. These stitching wires are not thick enough to create lines that could possibly be mistaken for uh, chain lines, however. Molds and papers of this kind are called single-faced or antique wove. And again, I'm sorry I don't have a larger picture of this, but here are the shadows. This is a very detailed view, but there are no chain lines that run down the middle of those shadows. Toward the end of the 18th century, the single-faced wove mold changed, becoming a double-faced mold. On the left is a section of a teaching mold made for me by Tim Moore. Here we see that in between the wooden ribs and the wove screen, there is an interleaving grid of wires to which the wove screen is sewn. In this type of mold, the cover no longer touches the ribs, and thus the shadows are eliminated. Into the 19th century, this structural change was increasingly applied to laid mold construction. Molds and papers of this kind are called single-faced or modern laid or wove, though the latter is almost always called just wove. And again, in the paper, um, there are no, there's nothing. Um, you can sometimes see a very faint weave pattern from the wire screen, but otherwise there are no uh, rib shadows and there are no chain lines. In this mold, the upper laid cover is separated from the ribs by a layer of more widely spaced support wires, and both layers are sewn, are stitched to the ribs. This separation ensures that the laid cover no longer touches the ribs. And the effect of this is that we see the chain lines, and if you look carefully, you can see these little stitch marks um, in, in a really nicely made piece of paper, but there are no rib shadows. The point of the single-faced mold was to produce papers that are evenly dense across the sheet. This is in direct contrast to single-faced papers, which are unevenly dense across the sheet because the, sheet, the rib shadow areas are thicker than the rest of the sheet. So here's a comparison of all four of those papers. The two, oops, sorry. Uh, these two are basically on double-faced molds and uh, do not have any shadows, and these two do. Uh, note here at the bottom, as we shall soon see, if the virtual wove is included in this timeline, it would fall where the red star is. So, right. <laughs> I'm sorry. Nope. I hate when this happens. So right there. So that's, that's where the virtual world would fall. And so we come to the Virgil Wove experiment. 
It has been a long-held belief that the Virgil Wove was made on a woven wire screen. For example, Dart Hunter, in his 1930 book, Papermaking Through 18 Centuries, wrote, The wove covering was made of fine brass screening and received its name from being woven on a loom in about the same manner as cloth. Hunter's supposition was not a new one, however, and it has been largely repeated by practically everyone writing about this subject, including me. In early 2015, the University of Michigan Library's copy of the Virgil arrived in the conservation lab because the covers were detached and the sewing was insecure. Once disbound, I opened out each gathering to look at the full sheets on a light box and photograph them. It was the first copy I had ever seen. To my amazement, I had the strong sense that I was not looking at a weave pattern left in the paper by a wire screen, but rather a textile. Exactly why I had this impression is hard to express, but I think the irregularities of the thread may uh, have the most to do with it. Presumably, wire would have been drawn to a standard gauge and there would be no such irregularities. I started reading about Watman and Baskerville and found, surprisingly, that considering the importance of this book, there isn't that much that's been published about it. In a 1952 article, however, Alan Hazen offered two uh, new suppositions about how the Virgil Wove might have been made. The Virgil of 1757 is partly on a new paper, perhaps made by placing woven wire or a stiff cloth screen on a conventional laid mold. Since it is, in effect, an unwatermarked wove paper that shows translucent chain lines. I was astonished uh, that Hazen and I had come to the same conclusion regarding the idea that a cloth laid over a laid mold might be the answer. Excuse me a minute. But rather than Hazen's stiff cloth, I thought that it needed to be flexible when wet and able to conform to the thickness of the chain lines. If a thin, wet piece of cloth is placed on top of a laid mold, the chain wires underneath push up the cloth to lie above most of the surface as seen here. During sheet formation, the density of the fibers will, be, will still be less in those areas, and this is what causes Hazen's translucent chain lines, seen in the Virgil Wove. Importantly, the cloth does not significantly interfere with the preferential drainage of pulp over the ribs, and thus it does not act like a double-faced mold. Therefore, paper made this way still features rib shadows, though neither they nor the chain lines will ever be as distinct as they are in a well-made, single-faced laid paper. And so, did Watman somehow learn about the Japanese practice of making wove paper by attaching a cloth on top of a laid mold, as we see in this slide? 
So the typical Japanese mold or su is here. These are bamboo splints. And in some molds, covers, for certain kinds of paper, particularly for a paper made from gompi fiber, which is extremely fine and tends to go through the laid surface, a cloth is actually sewn to the mold surface. And on the right, you can see a piece of typical gompi tengujo paper, which has uh, no shadows and no chain lines. Did Wattman try a simple experiment and place a piece of cloth over a laid mold just to see what would happen? Although we will probably never know why he did this, I think that is exactly what he actually did, and so I decided to try it. My first step was to visit mold maker Tim Moore, and he lent me five small, single-faced laid molds so that I could try out my theory. With his permission, I removed the copper strips from the five molds, covered each with a different cloth, ranging from an open-weave cheesecloth to a tight-weave linen textile. Once secure, the cloth was trimmed to the edge of the frame so that the one decal that fit all five molds would not have to be altered. Next, Tim Barrett at the University of Iowa Center for the Book agreed to help me make paper on these molds at the center's paper facility in Iowa City. Although cotton linters were never used to make paper in the 18th century, we selected it because it could be beaten short in very little time. The following are photos of me forming a sheet on one of the small loaves. This is fairly easy to do. After pressing the small sheets, Tim and I looked at each one in transmitted light to determine which cloth gave the best result. The crinoline was the most successful, and so we decided to try laying a strip of it over a larger 8.5 by 11 inch single face laid mold. When wet, the cloth clung to the sides of the frame and much to our surprise stayed in place during couching. The image on the left was photo enhanced to better show the nuances in this sheet. This experiment was successful in producing a paper with a similar look through to the Virgil Wove, as I hope you can see in these images, especially with regard to the rib shadows and the chain lines. And I hope you can see these. These are the chain lines and there's a, a faint shadow on either side of them. But again, the whole thing gets very muddied because of the presence of the cloth that kind of uh, dampens down the effect of the uh, laid surface. The characteristic that cannot be seen in the crinoline wove paper, however, is the weave of the, this cloth, but it can just be seen in the cheesecloth wove. The next logical step in this experiment was to find a new cloth with a more open weave than the crinoline and place it on a laid mold closer in dimensions to the original 19 by 24 inch hand mold that was used to make the Virgil wove. These are the five cloths used for the next phase at Iowa City and the red stars designate the two most successful uh, textiles. Uh, the Bartow tobacco cloth, rather odd name, is actually used to cover, I, I'm not sure which, cover the tobacco plants 
or to cover the tobacco while the tobacco was drying in order to keep dirt off of the uh, leaves, but air circulating around them. Anyway, it was a, a great cloth, as it turned out. In August 2017, I returned to Iowa City, and Tim Barrett and I tried out the four new cloths plus the crinoline. Tim volunteered the center's large 18 by 24 inch single face laid mold for the experiment. You can see that on the bottom right hand side. Unfortunately, this mold cover was slightly damaged and created horizontal streaks in the paper, which we'll see later. As we had done earlier, a strip of cloth was laid over the mold, revealing both the, the laid and the wove pattern in the same sheet. This is Tim and I uh, forming sheets of paper. As we had observed in the earlier experiment, the drainage of water over the wire and the cloth sections was not appreciably different, which actually was quite um, amazing. When cooching the paper off this much larger mold, the wet cloth had to be patted back down onto the sides of the mold and held in place when cooching it, or it tended to fall off the mold and spoil the sheet. Presumably, if this is how Wattman, I mean, not exactly laying a strip of cloth over a mold, obviously, but if this was how Wattman made the Virgil wove, he would have attached the cloth to the mold permanently probably by securing it under the strips as I did for the small molds. The effect of the cloth in suppressing the laid cover characteristics but not completely eliminating them is more evident perhaps in the fresh sheets seen along the top compared to the dry sheets below. If you can disregard those horizontal streaks made by the defective mold cover, the rib shadows and chain lines are much clearer in the tobacco cloth paper as uh, compared to the paper made on the linen cloth. And I, I hope you can see that. The detail of the linen cloth shows a clear weave pattern in the paper which compares favorably to the Virgil wove. But in the tobacco cloth paper, the weave pattern is not as distinct. If I were to continue experimenting, I would ask a weaver to make a specific cloth. But it turns out that that's not necessary because over the last three years, I have examined now 124 copies of the Virgil and have come to the conclusion that at least two cloths were used, two different cloths were used to make the Virgil wove, um, which happily, both uh, res uh, resemble both the tobacco and the linen cloths. With all of this in mind, then, I think it's safe to conclude from these experiments that the Virgil Woe was indeed made by securing cloth over single-faced laid molds. And so we leave the Virgil Woe and turn to the typographical variants found in this book. According to the 1754 prospectus, Baskerville intended to follow the text in the Cambridge edition of the Virgil, presumably this 1701 edition, uh, in quotes, corrected with all possible care, unquote. 
This is a a somewhat ironic statement because Baskerville's Virgil is replete with printing errors, including the mispagination, as I've said before, of 128 pages. In the hand press era, and at any point, I think, in the history of printing, mistakes have been made. No matter how carefully proofs are read, errors are missed. Sometimes a few are caught at the press, but other mistakes are not caught, and these are the ones that confound us, especially those that are so obvious once pointed out. Gaskell, in his Baskerville bibliography, lists a number of errors in the Virgil, and I have found a few more. In this talk, I only have time to highlight a very few of these variants. But first, is the copy in front of you the first or the second edition? Exactly when the second edition was printed remains unknown, but Gaskell and others have given a date in the early 1770s. The font of the Baskerville typeface for the second edition is supposed to be slightly different from the first edition, but unfortunately I haven't had uh, any time to do work in that area. The uh, later edition is often referred to as a forgery or the false edition. I don't really understand why it is called that. Um, It almost certainly was made in Baskerville print shop. uh, but for what reason and exactly when, we, st- we still don't know. These are the title pages in the two editions. At first they look the same, but there is a slight difference in the location of the J in Johannes relative to the B in Birmingham. So in the first edition, the J is, uh, is to the right of the B, and in the second edition, the J is to the left. Obviously, when you start looking through the copies, they're quite different. The second edition has no wove paper in it, for one thing. Um, And it's all made on exactly the same laid paper, which is in a much poorer quality paper than found in the first edition. Some of the errors are corrected, but uh, new, completely different errors uh, can be found in the second edition. But there is always an exception, of course, and here is one. In the center is the title page of a copy at the Bodleian Library, which I saw about a month ago, and it is not the same setting as either the first or the second edition title pages, and it is printed on a different laid paper to both copies uh, laid paper. Cataloged as the second edition, I almost didn't look at this book, but when I did, I was astonished to see this aberrant title page and then thrilled to find out that it was, in fact, a first edition. I was pleased to be able to notify the grateful curator that they had a sixth first edition in their collection. Now that we know we're looking at the first edition, we can begin to look for typographical variants. This is the description of the Virgil from Strauss and Dentz's Dentz's seminal 1907 work on Baskerville. They noted variants that comprise states, or the order of printing, in red, here one through six. State seven, in blue down at the bottom, is in fact the second edition, which they do talk about. And they actually date the second edition 
they think more realistically to 1758. I tend to agree with them that it was printed much uh, uh, quite a, or sooner after the first edition was published um, for a number of reasons, which again I don't have time to go into. Um, in fact, the variants noted here are far more numerous um, than, than these, and I hope that after I've compiled my database of variants, I'll be able to give a much more comprehensive proposal of this book's states. My survey form has changed significantly since examining my first copy at the University of Michigan three years ago. This particular form records my findings in Philip Gaskell's copy of the Virgil held at some bride library in London. And it was a real thrill to be able to look at this particular copy. I've also seen uh, Strauss's copy. So it's, this is all a lot of fun. <laughs> As I have seen more copies, I have added new variants by noting them in pencil on the form. Ideally, at the end of this project, I would go back and look at every copy again to see if the new variants exist in the ones I've already seen. But that's unlikely to happen as much as I would love to do, uh, be able to do that. Instead, I intend to email forms to librarians and curators and ask them to search for the new variants in their copies, along with uh, supplying images so that they can actually distinguish between some of these uh, choices, which can be very difficult to distinguish. Uh, the following represent only a very few of these variants. Uh, so I've noted in the Cambridge copy the, uh, the particular word, um, and then uh, in this particular example, this is the word as it was printed, but apparently it was incorrect, although I have not been able to find this word in a Latin dictionary, so I really don't know exactly how it was uh, supposed to be uh, spelled. In the versions 1, 2, and 3, um, this, the diphthong has been uh, scratched out, sometimes actually going right through the paper. Um, and then uh, an E is actually stamped, just in, a, I think, a little hand uh, stamp. I mean, type, but uh, uh, stamped over that, that um, offending er era, area. Uh, in this example, just the A has been scratched out and the E has been left behind. I've seen so many of these now that I'm pretty sure that most of this, the scratch and stamp has been, was done by the printer and not by other people because they, they're just too, uh, although they can be well done or, and really badly done, um, they're, they're, they're too uniform to have been done, sort of haphazard by owners, for example. Uh, down at the bottom, you can see two owner's corrections here, um, the error is just simply pointed out, uh, and in this case, the offending printed uh, letters were scratched out and then an E just simply inked in. Another variant, uh, that variant was uh, noted by Gaskell. Uh, this is another variant noted by him, which um, was a correction either made at the press or it could possibly part, be part of a canceled uh, gathering, although um, 
Gaskell's not really sure, and I'm not either, whether um, the gathering that we see, this is from the laid paper section. So the laid paper section and the cancels on the same laid paper, if they're a whole gathering, we can't see that, that they're easily, we can't easily see that they're, uh, that a cancel is there. We have to look at corrected errors. So in this particular instance, and this is why sometimes images are necessary, that almost reads like one word, uh, but in fact it is two words here, and that Q is almost always bolded. Uh, this is the corrected uh, word, and sometimes that Q is bolded and sometimes it isn't. And then uh, finally, for my last uh, Example, this is actually um, a variant that was found by me. Um, and you can see here that the, uh, the, the word, they've abbreviated the word in this particular instance. And so there was enough room in the line to put the entire uh, last two words. Here they haven't, uh, didn't have room, so they just simply moved the RS down to the bottom, or the next line, and then put this uh, uh, Parentheses um, on, on just the, the, the open parentheses. I think it's called the open parentheses. Um, but you can see that something happened. The spacing here is a little wonky. The R is bolded, and here it's slid back in the other direction and up a little bit too high. Um, and here is another uh, version of this where the um, RS has actually been, been um, hyphenated. I think these are all alterations that occurred at the press. Uh, this isn't uh, part of a canceled brief at all. Obviously, I could go on and on about this remarkable book. There is lots and lots to talk about. All of the leaves, all of the sheets were plated um, after printing to make the paper extremely smooth and glossy. And that's another whole aspect uh, along with the typeface that, and the inking and the ink itself uh, and the press work, all things that really distinguish this book from uh, any other book uh, that was published at the period. But I will stop here to take questions and thank you very much for your attention. Mm -hmm. Consistency, I think, told you it came from the print shop, and you had some reasoning behind thinking those were all done with the printer's cancels, and I wondered if you could talk more um, about your experience looking at the stubs and the paste and, and thinking about that. Right. Um, and I should say the stubs aren't always visible. Uh, it depends on how tightly the um, book is sewn. Um, sometimes you know, a, you know a cancel is there, and you just absolutely cannot see it unless you force, you know. Rare book librarians are not really very keen on me doing that, so I, I tend not to do that. Um, 
but sometimes uh, you can really, really see them very, very easily. And it's the it's the kind the, the example of the stub that I showed you is a little odd in that it wasn't torn very very easily. I should also note that because this book is in quarto, that the grain direction runs short, which means that it's like tearing an, uh, an ad out of a newspaper. If you, you can tear it really easily in one way and the other way it tends to be fairly ragged. Um, and that's essentially what's happened here. I think whoever tore it out probably used a straight edge to tear against. But it's the, the, the width of the stub, um, how it's torn out, and then this uh, very kind of darkish brown paste with a lot of flex in it. Um, sometimes fairly well done, neatly and cleanly, and sometimes the paste just gets slopped all over the place. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure that those cancels were dealt with in the print shop and not in, you know, married and sundry uh, binders. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just out of curiosity, No, no, not at all. So it was just a typical laid? It was a fairly typical um, laid paper, yes. It had a, a, quite a large watermark on it. I think it was probably Dutch-made paper. Um, the, the royal, of course, refers to the size of the paper. Most often I get the comment, well, why writing paper if you're printing a book? Shouldn't this be a book paper? Um, I think the, the term writing in this case is a sort of quality um, adjective. In other words, it's, it's better than your average book paper. Um, writing paper, of course, would have been, if made for writing, would have been heavily sized with gelatin. Um, I, not, the one thing I haven't done with this book is actually test to see whether there is any gelatin sizing in it. If there is, I would doubt that it would be very much. Um, book papers were generally not sized very heavily, if sized at all because they always had to be dampened uh, before printing. And gelatin-sized paper spoiled very readily um, during this procedure. Plus, you wanted a paper that was very flexible, very malleable, so that you could uh, print without having to use a lot of pressure, because a lot of pressure couldn't be generated from a common hand press. So. Um, uh, so generally, I think the, the term writing was just another term for, for very good quality. Did I answer your question? Yes. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm. Hi. Um, were you able to do research on uh, the kind of textiles that would have been produced at that time? And you know, how would we be able to get something that's approximate to um, something that was produced in Baskerville's time? Yeah, uh, I think um, I, I should say that I'm almost positive that the, whatever cloth weave this was, it was linen cloth and not cotton cloth. Um, an expert in textiles told me that cotton cloth does not hold up well um, if, if left wet for a long period of time, that linen would have been far more hard wearing. Um, in terms of the open weave, I think you probably could get a whole variety of of uh, weave styles um, that would have been readily available um, at the time. 
I haven't done any particular research in this subject. I have looked at uh, books about historical linen, um, but uh, I, I, I think I've just come to the conclusion that generally Wallman probably used whatever was readily at hand. Um, and the, 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 the conclusion that two cloths were used, of course, when you're making paper uh, production uh, in a production style, you use two molds and one decal always. So um, two molds would have been covered with presumably the same cloth. I'm assuming that the first pair of cloths wore out and they were replaced by another pair of cloths. And that's accounts for the two different weave patterns that you see in the in the book. It's going to be very interesting to see if if I get the, the feeling that the papers were actually kind of mixed up. So it may be possible that two vets were devoted to making this wove paper, one which had a particular cloth on it and one which had another cloth on it. And that's why you tend to get examples of two of the two cloth papers in one book. Yes. I do well after you will look at a lot of them, you, you just you can just see them. Um, they're very easy to see. Um, but I have a, a huge number of photographs. I can't tell you how many. I have thousands and thousands and thousands of photographs that I've taken of these things. Um, so um, I do a lot of comparison looking at uh, photographic records afterwards. Do you use cooling machines at all? No, I don't. Um, although uh, there are some very curious canceled uh, leaves and gatherings, particularly in the laid paper section where it's difficult to to see the cancels, but for one reason or other we know they're there. I've tried actually superimposing images of two different copies in, um, in design by making the top copy almost transparent. And that there's a lot of fiddling around with getting the size exactly right, but I think that holds some promise in be, being able to do uh, this sort of collation um, at, at home on your computer rather than having to have a collator, which would be kind of awkward. And they're very uh, difficult to set up anyway. I should note, just before, <laughs> because Michael, I can see him getting out of his seat, um, I did bring uh, the papers that I made on all of the molds along with the small five molds, um, and they're in the little classroom right off the... Um, main lobby area in, in 114. And so uh, they'll be available tomorrow at breakfast and maybe during the morning uh, uh, break, and I'll be in there and be able to answer your questions. Thank you. You're all most cordially invited to a reception in Kathy's honor down in the Rare Book School reception area where the conversation will doubtless continue. Thank you very much indeed.